0: Good morning, everyone. It's awesome. It's great to be in the house of God. It's always such a joy, and uh, I really enjoyed that one hour that Lord so graciously granted me this morning to sleep. Isn't that wonderful? Just to have some extra time to sleep. I know the young people would say amen to that. <laughs> okay, and I can see my daughter smiling. Well, we are on a journey, Church, through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are in chapter 11, and it's so such a joy just to see on the 11th month we are in the 11th chapter. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's really good. If you recall during the Easter time, as it was mentioned earlier, we did cover a large portion of this chapter dealing with the miraculous act of the Lord, bringing Lazarus back to life. And this morning we are at the tail end of the chapter going over from verse 45. So I'm going to ask you, please turn in your Bibles. Uh, And we are going to look at from verse 45 onwards. I must tell you, as I wrestled with this text, I realized that I need to break it down into two parts. I had given the title of today's message at the Pharisee in me. Honestly, I had about three different titles, and finally the Lord convicted me two days ago. This is the right title for this message. So today we'll be focusing only from verse 45 to 48, And in two weeks, I will address the second part from 49 to 57. So, Church, let me ask you a question. Have you ever asked why do people engage in acts of violence or terrorism taking the lives of others? I was reading some statistics the other day over the past decade. Through violence, an average of 26,000 people worldwide they perished. The saddest part is the majority of the victims were innocent civilians. Church terrorism isn't limited to one group or one race or one geographic area or grievance or goal or method or area. We have seen in this century alone that violence was committed against innocent people for all kinds of reasons. They want to create a new country there is violence, or carry out a revolution, or or to achieve racist goals, or to free animals from lab testing, or to end abortion, and the list can go on. So it's hard for us to classify every one of them as terrorists. So what is common amongst these people? What is common amongst these people? One commonality is that their strong ideological beliefs drive them to commit violence. Would you agree with me? yes many of them have been radicalized by some extreme ideology into thinking that killing for a worthy cause is right some strongly believe that they are only carrying out righteous acts of payback or retribution for the loss of other innocent lives others regard killing the innocent as a necessary evil to bring an end to a greater evil. It does not matter what pace these people use to justify their heartless acts of killing, church, we must understand one thing, is that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Let me repeat that. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart because the scripture says very clearly the human heart It says, according to the scriptures, is deceitful. Everybody said deceitful. Is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And interestingly, the NIV translation says beyond cure. That's talking about your heart and my heart. Beyond cure. So ever since the fall of man took place, the heart of every man, every woman, every child has been deeply infected with sin and is prone to commit sin. And here's the most sobering thought, church. Given just the right condition for all of us, every one of us here in the church, as pious and holy we may look like, is capable of committing the most evil and perverse sins that man can commit. And church, that includes the sins that are described in today's scripture text for our sermon this morning. So, church, here's the justification of the Pharisees for the heinous crime that they're about to commit. They're saying Christ has to be crucified for the greater good. That's what they say. Christ has to be crucified. Why? For a greater good. Church, listen, we do this many times. Every one of us here. You may ask, pastor, how am I crucifying Christ? This is the crux of the message today. The Pharisee in me does it all the time. So as we explore this text, remember one thing. If not for his unconditional grace, which was showered on all of us, we too are most capable, every one of us, of being one amongst these people who are ready to put Christ to death. There's a powerful lesson for the believers I find in here. Though we claim ourselves to be born-again, refined, and reformed believers, occasionally, this little Pharisee within us pop up that would want us to crucify the Lord. So there are at least four markers I found in this text, starting from 45 to 57, which may help us to identify the, the pharisaical behavior within us. So come along with me, please. We'll address, as I said, uh, two of these, those markers today, and the two in two weeks' time, because I'm not in a hurry to finish this text today. and Nobody's in a hurry. We are not going anywhere unless the Lord comes. So let us approach this study with an open heart and mind, because it's a power, powerful personal lesson to every one of us. That the Lord would do a radical transformation. That as the Spirit convicts us, we will yield ourselves for the transformation. We will not resist it. This message is to the believers. To all of us seated here, if you are believers, to me as well. So let us pray. Father, we know that we are entering into a text. Which for me it is very personal. And is very convicting. And I pray in Jesus' name, the Spirit of the Lord will move mightily amongst us, O God. Remove any and every distraction from our minds. Help us to stay focused on your word. Let your word do its work in our lives, O God. And cause the transformation that we so desperately need. So be with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me give you the context of this text now. It was just about two months before Jesus would go to the cross at Calvary. Now, he and his disciples were staying at a village, I hope you can see this, called Bethany. Bethany, which is only about four kilometers east of Jerusalem. I want you to look at the map. So, when they they had arrived there, a few weeks earlier, there, they were met by two grieving sisters, Mary and Martha. Why why were they grieving? They were stricken with the grief because... Their brother Lazarus had died. Now before this, Lazarus had been very sick and Mary and Martha tried their best to provide medication and every possible cure. But it didn't work out. They sent messengers to Jesus hoping that he would come quickly to Bethany and heal him. But it did not happen. Lazarus passed away. When Jesus finally arrived, Lazarus had already been dead and buried for four days. Humanly speaking, church, there was absolutely no way now that Mary and Martha could have him back alive. Impossible. Because Lazarus had done physically, his body was in fact decaying. Now, come with me, please. As Jesus walked in there and he said, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And the text says, Lazarus came out from the grave. You know the story, you know the miracle. So several miracles had to happen instantly for Lazarus to come out. The process of decay not only had to be stopped and reversed, but also all the decomposition that had already taken place, had to be instantly healed. His physical body was immediately brought back to a healthy condition. And not only that, church, his dead ears became alive, so he was able to hear the command of the Lord. And in addition, Lazarus' soul had to be rejoined to the body, so he would have controlled his brain and his his body to respond to Jesus' call. So, church, at that very moment, when Jesus prayed and called out his friend inside Lazarus, come forth, a miracle of immense proportion took place. I want you to understand the immensity, the gravity of the incident that took place at that moment. So, Lazarus walked out of the tomb alive and well. Imagine the sisters at that time. What great joy this might have brought to them. Wow! Wow! But imagine those who are witnessing. Place yourself as one of those people who are witnessing the whole event. What amazement must have filled your hearts at that time. How could someone who had been dead and lying in a tomb for four days come back to healthy life? That's the question you ask. I'm certain everyone would have wondered, how could this happen by simply... Just a word or a command, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus, come out. How can this happen? This is truly an impossible act for man. It can only mean that the one who did it is not a mere man, but God himself. Church, if you recall a few weeks ago, I spoke of the four messianic miracles. Remember that? In Jewish belief, just to refresh your mind, there were four physical conditions in mankind that could only be corrected by Yahweh himself. It was believed that when God would send his Messiah, hear me out, the sign that would prove to the Pharisees who he was would be the performance of four specific miracles. You remember this slide that I showed you some time ago? These are the messianic miracles, cleansing a leper, casting out a deaf for a dumb spirit, healing of birth defects, and raising the dead after three days. So church, if any miracle that should have convinced the Jews beyond any doubt at all that Jesus really is the Lord God in the flesh, this must really be it. This should have nailed it down then and there. Jesus has already worked many great miracles and we looked at some of the miracles in the past but Jews had been continually asking him can you show us one more convincing evidence that you are the God you are who you are church tell me wasn't this act of raising Lazarus the last sign they needed of course shouldn't they now put all their doubts away and believe in him, embrace him fully as the Messiah and follow him wholeheartedly. But instead of doing that, hear me out, church, this miracle of raising Lazarus stirred up the worst reaction of all from the Jews. It hardened their resolve to go out to destroy Jesus. It set in motion a chain of events that would lead to his arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, and his death. This leaves us wondering, I'm sure that you and I may be asking the question, why should such a thing happen? Have you ever asked church, why should such a great miracle of love and life, by the Lord Jesus, bring forth such an adverse reaction of hatred and death against him? I've given you the answer already. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That's what you saw earlier. I'll just refresh your mind because at least if there is one scripture you want to memorize, may this be the one. Constantly reminding you the condition of your heart. Because it's deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. The scariest thought is that sin that dwells in our hearts makes us capable of doing the very same thing, church, even today. If not for the grace of God, if not what he did for us on the cruel cross of Calvary, we too would have done exactly the same thing as the Jews in our text. We too could have reacted in a most unreasonable manner against the Lord, despite the compelling evidence that stands before us, and we too would convince ourselves that putting Jesus to death is the right thing to do. So, church, this morning, as we cruise through this text, may we ask the question, what are the justifications of the Pharisees to crucify Christ? How does it relate to my own pharisaical behavior? What are the behaviors of myself that reveal the Pharisee within me? Scary, but that's the truth. That's why I want to go slowly, and I want every one of you, you had one extra hour to sleep, so don't sleep in the church. I want every one of you to come along with me. Because it's a very powerful lesson for all of us. So let's dive into the text. Verse 45, then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen what? The things Jesus did, believed in him. Believed in him. What do we take from this? A considerable number of Jews, I guess they must be the friends of Mary, and who witnessed the glory of God, who had been hostile before, they were changed in heart and mind to believe in Jesus, And how? When they saw what? The things Jesus did. It's very important. Let's go to the next verse. Verse number 46. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them what? The things Jesus did. The things Jesus did. So what do we take from this? Some went to the Pharisees and told the things Jesus did. Their motive was not clearly stated in this particular verse. You can't understand the motive. We could argue that it may be that they want to win the Pharisees to the truth, maybe, but the contrast set up between the two verses, it only tells me that their intent was malicious. Let's go on to verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council. The NIV would call it the Sanhedrin, and we'll come to that in a minute. And said, what shall we do for this man? What? What is he doing? Works many signs. What do we take from this? On seeing the many signs Jesus did, there was an assembly of religious leaders to see what they should be doing to stop this. Why? Because they need to stop this. Because the Pharisees by themselves could not take decisive judicial action against Jesus. So, of course, you'll ask the question, Pastor, what is a counselor or what is Sanhedrin? Is it, when you understand what Sanhedrin is, it's easy to understand the gravity of the, the, what we are talking about here. Sanhedrin is the highest judicial body in the land, of, uh, in, in, in their land which under Roman authority controlled all Jewish internal affairs. The Sanhedrin was like the US Supreme Court. They are the final authority on decisions that affected the religious and political life of all the Jews. Their rulings were binding for a time and on all Jews scattered throughout the world. In Jesus days the members of the Sanhedrin were dominated by chief priests, and the priests drawn from the extended family of high priests. Most of them were Sadducees. You're sad to see they are Sadducees, but the Pharisees, the influential minority. So the problem of Jesus was put to, on the Sanhedrin's agenda. So what have we learned so far on this? Uh, so far in verses 45 to 47. The motive for the Pharisees to put Jesus to death is to impede or to obstruct or to stop the things Jesus did. Do you get it? Yes. Let me highlight this to you. You will notice in the first, two, first three verses, the first one, verse 45, it was this that caused many Jews to believe in him, his actions. Verse 46, it was the things that Jesus did that some Jews went to tell the Pharisees about. Verse 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to discuss what they ought to do because of the things that Jesus did. They want to stop it. If only Jesus had not done all those miracles, please come along with me, these Jews would have no problem with him at all. But because he did them, and they were far too many. They felt the urgent need to do something to stop him. To stop him. They must have thought that putting Jesus to death would be the most effective way to stop Jesus' action. Church, what they did not know was this. When they put Jesus to death... That would only enable to accomplish his greatest miracle on work on earth, his own resurrection from the dead and the salvation of sinners. And this in turn would good rise to his work of building his church. That is why we are here, church. To work a work which no one would be able to stop. No one. So what do we learn from this? In the history of Christian church, many have tried to stop God's work in the very same way. Many. Just like what the Jews did. By persecuting Christians, by putting them to death, many were beheaded, thrown to the lions, burnt at the stake. You know, one of the persons that I look up to as a great example is William Tyndale. William Tyndale, a great example, his martyrdom, you must, see, you must understand this, he was the first one to translate the Bible from the original Greek to English. He was in Germany when he did that. In 1525, history says that his New Testament was printed and smuggled back into England. In August Then he started working on the Old Testament. He wanted to translate that into English. But he was captured. In 1536, he was condemned. And on the 6th of October, 1536, he was strangled and his body, listen church, burnt at the stake. You talk about persecution. We talk about persecution when we can't have a meal. When we can't travel around. This is persecution. Burnt at the stake. You know what his last prayer was? Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And he died. And he died. So people understand this. They were trying to stop what? God's work. See what happened. His prayer, God opens the king's eyes, was answered in part in three years afterwards. In the year 1539, Henry VIII required that every parish church in England to make a copy of the English Bible available to his parishioners. You ain't stopping God's work. But even when all the enemies of Christ had done their worst, church, they were the ones who were stopped. While the work of Christ just kept going on and on and on. And one day, all those who tried to stop the work of God have to face God And account for their sin of attempting to stop his work. Scary, isn't it? So let me ask you a question. Let's bring it down to to applications now. Have you been trying to stop God's work? Have you? You ask, Pastor, how is it possible? How is it possible? Let me tell you how. Perhaps the Lord has been lately speaking to you about something He wants you to do for Him, but you have been stubbornly resisting Him. You are stopping God's work. Or perhaps you have been doing His work consistently until now, but because of tiredness, you feel like stopping. Even though it clearly, His will for you to continue. You are stopping God's work. Or perhaps you see the huge need in the church or in a ministry. And you know you have the skill set to take it on. Yet you are drowned in your worldly stuff. You keep on giving excuses. You are stopping God's work. Here's a quick checklist I came up with. Please church, come along with me. It's not an exhaustive list. But I want you to understand some of the factors that can impede the work of God. Number one, for me, I see you are lazy. And all young people said what? Yes. All oh, the parents can say for that, right? God hates laziness. God hates it. Proverbs says, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring, bring wealth. Number two could be that you cannot let go of the past hurt. You were wounded. I was wounded, Pastor. I was serving in the church, but I heard this so and so hurt me like that. So what? Welcome aboard. That is the ministry. You are burned once, you are burned twice, you are burned three times. So who cares? The Lord will reward you for that. Think about Apostle Paul. You know, he said in in 2 Corinthians, he said, I am persecuted but not abandoned, I am struck down but not destroyed. We always carry on. And he says he always carry on in the body the death of Jesus or the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. That's what Paul says. And the third reason that you give is that you are prideful. Pride is the mother of all sins. Some of these tasks pastor in the church is very menial. What, you want me to go and check the toilets? You want me to go and wash the dishes? Ah. Oh, I don't even do it in my house that's beyond me I know you don't do it here but I'm just telling you the pride the Bible says everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination for the Lord and the third thing the, the fourth thing is that you lack faith can I can I really get in and do God's work like this Think about Abraham, our great father. Leave your home and go. He has no clue. He didn't have a GPS even at that time. Right? God, where am I going? Just come. Have you ever thought about that? The father of the nations, the great father. Come. He just walked. Faith. Faith. We want to reach out to the community. Oh, no, no, these are the reasons why it won't work. We can come up with a list. We went this weekend and figured out how we can reach out to the community. Move by faith. If you don't, you're stopping God's work. Number five. Is that you run away from God's calling. What did our brother Jonah do? God called him. I have an assignment for you in Mississauga. No, God, I won't run to Toronto. Because there's a boat waiting to go to Toronto. You spiritualize your excuses. Because the one that called us is faithful. And here's the most important thing for us. You stop God's work when you are not a giver. When you don't give, you're stopping God's work. It's not that God wants your money. He created it. It's His. Everything is His. He can move from point A to point B. But when you give, you're demonstrating what? Your faithfulness. God honors that. God honors that. Church, I want to tell you one thing. You know what you give, and I'm not, you know, know, we don't talk about money, and that is not my goal, but I want you to understand is 20% of the congregation contribute to the 80% of the income of the church. But what are the others doing? If everybody can give cheerfully, the Lord's ministry can flourish. Because God sees our faithfulness and he honors us. The last one, I have a list, is that you keep sinning against God. Then you stop God's work. Isaiah passages, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor His ear too dull to hear. You cry out, God, I want to move. He's going to answer you. He's going to guide you through. And the second verse, but your iniquities have separated you from God. You stop God's work. So please understand that it is futile to resist God because no one can win against Him. Church, as a pastor, there are times I was disheartened. But I knew the buck stops with me. Even if everyone drops their ball, I have to keep on and keeping on. I remind myself that nothing ever happens unless someone does something and that someone is me. I have to do it. Maybe with silent tears, you go on and on and on with only hope. And the faith and the strength is because the one who called me is faithful. He will never abandon me. So let the Lord continue to do his work in and through your life, church. Every one of you. Everyone is called to serve. If you are not serving in the church, you should go and ask your pastor today and your elders how can I serve? Here is the comforting assurance we have from the Lord. No matter what discouragement may come your way, once you place your hands on the plow, you know turning back. But here's the promise that the Lord has given to us. We have to remain faithful to what He has called you to do, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. So no matter what may come your way, Keep on keeping on. Never give up, for the Lord sees all that you do. Church, I want to tell you this. I love Apostle, uh, Apostle Peter. He says this, that there is an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you and for me, those of us who run the race faithfully. It's called the imperishable crown. Let us aim for that. When our eyes are focused on that crown, we are not stopping the work of God. And no one can stop the work of God. And as we continue, church, we continue because the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen? It's not in vain. So that is my first point. And And as we move on, so my my exhortation is keep on keeping on for for the labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's move on to the second one. I'm going to look at verse number 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Everyone will believe in him. So I said the Pharisee in me my pharisaical behavior, or a Christian, is that the one who impedes God's work. That's the first one that I, I mentioned, first point. And the second point is the one who prevents men from believing in Christ. That's what you see here. They want to get rid of Jesus because otherwise everyone will be believing in him. Their, their, their fear is not without reason, church. Because they just witnessed, in verse 45, we saw the many who, who came to Mary, their friends, already believed in Jesus after witnessing Lazarus' resurrection. And, and the reason they were fearful is because the miracle just happened so close to Jerusalem. How many kilometers? Four kilometers away. The news of it would easily have reached all the people in Jerusalem. And it's very easy to walk over to Bethany to verify the facts of the miracle. And when the Passover feast begins a few weeks later, Jerusalem will be flooded with Jews from every corner of Israel who would then hear about the miracle. And what will happen? They will believe in Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees were extremely threatened by the prospects of Jews in Jerusalem. They were worried that Jews in thousands may turn to Jesus. This would mean that they would lose their entire support base. All their esteem and their glamour and their honour and the loyalty which they receive from all these men will be gone. If they leave them and follow Jesus. That would be disastrous as these proud Jews loved to be honored and they could not tolerate no rival. After all, they were the members of the Sanhedrin Council and the highest ruling body of the Jews in all Israel, which is something like our parliament. You want to be respected. And what better way is there to prevent all that loss of esteem, honor, and loyalty than to get rid of this one man, once and for all. So these Pharisees and Jews wanted to crucify Christ to prevent men from believing in him. Church, we do the same. Every one of us. We crucify Christ when we prevent men from believing in him. What do we learn from this? In this narrative, you can see what jealousy and envy have done to the Jews that that they wanted to crucify Christ. If you are not careful, it could happen to us too. Dearly beloved, do you feel upset when others are more successful than you? Do you feel down in the dumps when someone in your workplace or in your school or home seems to be getting more attention, earning more praises than you, or making more money than you. If you do, please be aware, for fear that this sin will grow and grow, and until it consumes you with evil desires against your rival. Then you deserve the same very judgment as the Jews in our text. So you ask me, Pastor, how do I prevent men from believing in Christ? How am I doing it? Church, listen, the answer is simple. You prevent men from believing in Christ by your poor testimony. Everybody said the word testimony. Testimony. Paul has clearly exhorted us in in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. He said, therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. So there are two things that we see here that Paul wants us to do. Number one, be imitators of God, and you should walk in love. This speaks of who you should be in Christ. And then as you look at the, 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 the latter part of Ephesians 5, Paul is also warning us what we should not be. Please come along carefully with me on this. But among you, there must not be what? Even a hint. A hint of sexual immorality. He's not talking about even sexual immorality. He's saying even a hint of sexual immorality. And and the list goes on. Kind of impurity and, and greed and obscenity and foolish talk and coarse joking and so on and so forth. Church, when you possess even an iota of these traits, we portray a wrong witness and we can cause others to stumble. We can prevent men from believing in Christ by possessing these qualities in us. That is why I keep telling, and I've I've mentioned this many times in my preaching, that that Apostle Paul warns us this. Look at this passage in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Test all things, he says. Your behavior, test it. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. KJV puts it, abstain from all appearance of evil. What does that mean, church? This is where we fail, every one of us. Avoid all perception of evil. Everybody say the word perception. The problem that you have even in your marital relationship is all about perception. Perception. Imagine this, you love your wife, you love your husband, you are staying together. If you don't love each other, if you don't trust each other, you have to sleep with one eye open, isn't it? You don't know what she or he or she might do in the night. But if you really can sleep comfortably with each other on one bed, what does that mean? If there is an issue that is happening, it's because of the way you are perceiving things. Sometimes your act may not be evil and you can justify it but if someone would perceive it as evil the Bible says avoid it. Stop it. Because if there's an iota of doubt in your behavior don't do it especially if you are in leadership roles. And I'm holding every leader in this church to this. Every one of you. If you are not careful, you will prevent men from believing in Christ. And you are the cause for it. Church, we may argue on various gray issues. Is it okay to put tattoos on our bodies? Is it okay for men to pierce their ears? Pierce it wherever you want, the whole body, who cares? Is it okay to drink in moderation? Church, we can justify by, by quoting scriptures. We can justify by quoting the norms of the culture. We can justify relating to other prominent Christian leaders. We can justify by saying what matters is the condition of a heart, not my, not my appearance or my actions. But Apostle Paul exhorts us very clearly. Very clearly. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. NIV puts it beautifully, I have the right to do everything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. And then he says that all things are lawful for you, but not all things edify. In other words, if it is not helpful and it is not edifying, don't do it. Because you become a stumbling block for somebody else. So if there is an element of doubt, why do you want to justify and why cause another person to stumble? Church, I'll give you a personal example. Growing up, you know, I was I was I, I, I love parties, I love music, and most importantly, I love to dance. When I was in the campus, when I was this, I was the first one to be on the dance floor. Picture we are going on a picnic and there's a nice music. You see a pastor dancing to those music. There's a problem, isn't it? I can sit here and debate about this church and say, what's wrong in me dancing? I can de- I can argue, isn't it? Oh, I am a pastor, I know the scriptures, you know, I'm not doing anything else. But it's an appearance of evil. Do you get it? My wife is my witness. I I stopped getting on to any dance floors. The only time I danced within the last 10 or 15 years is when my daughter got married. I still enjoy party. I enjoy music, but I'm not on the dancing floor. I did not want to portray a wrong picture of a servant of God. I want to avoid the perception of evil because I do not want a new believer or an unbeliever to stumble. I want to guard my testimony. So if you are in any leadership role, you ought to be very, very careful or you can cause another to stumble. Picture this. I know I can take Keith as an example. He is the worship leader of this church. Therefore, whatever he is doing must be right. That's how the others are going to look at it, isn't it? Yes or no? Yes. I'm holding him to the highest standard. Let's see, I see him coming out of a tavern from a bar I know that he won't drink but let's say with me there's another new believer standing and watching Keith walking out of a tavern with some friends there is a perception of evil that can cause another person to stumble they can say if he can go I can go but he goes he doesn't drink but I feel that I can go and drink because Keith was there. Church, do you get what I'm saying, church? If you are in leadership, be all the more very careful because the scripture is very clear, church, because we can cause the weaker ones to follow suit and the devil wins. I want you to be warned of this. The scripture is very clear. My brethren, James Wright, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment, a hint of sexuality, sexual immorality. Avoid it. Church, listen carefully. When our testimonies and cause others to stumble, we are not only crucifying Christ, we are condemned by the Lord. This should scare everybody. The punishment of such act is severe. The Lord warned us. Look at this. Matthew 18. I want to go along this very slowly so that it registers in your mind and in your heart. If anyone causes any of these little ones, the little ones here, we can take it as the ones who are weaker in faith. Anyone causes uh, anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. It would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I really thank the Lord that we are close to Lakeshore. I've told Pastor Dior we're going to get some millstone to this house. Church, that's how serious God is. Do you get it? Don't take it lightly. You are not cheating anybody else. You are cheating God. And this is the punishment. Let's be very careful. So, as, you conclude, as I conclude this church, we looked at two things. The Pharisee within me. When we impede God's work or when we hinder others' faith. Because we have been called to be the fragrance of Christ, isn't it? All of us. We have to guard our testimonies So that we are the fragrance of Christ. I'm not sure church where we stand. Keith if you can come up please. I'm not sure where you stand in these two areas. The Pharisee in me would cause me to impede God's work. The Pharisee in me can cause me to hinder others from believing in Christ. Are you guilty of it? Only you will know the answer. I don't. I don't. You know the best person to ask? Will be your parent, your children, or your spouse? They're not going to lie to you. Your friends might lie to you. Oh, it's okay. I know my wife never lies to me. She will tell me, call the spade the spade. I don't like it sometimes, but what do you do? I'm thankful for that. Are you guilty of it? Can we ask the Lord to remove the Pharisee within me this morning? I'm going to ask if you are able to stand. If you can't, please. It's not your, how you stand or sit, the condition of your heart. I know some of you can't stand. That's okay. If you, if you're, only if you are able, please stand. I just want to ask that can we ask the Lord to remove the Pharisee within us? Can we ask him to, can we give ourselves to God? Can we ask him to consecrate us? Can we ask him to mold us into the persons we ought to be? There's a beautiful song that we have, a hymn that we have selected. Take my life. Son, can you bring it up, please? Take my life and let it be. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. May it be from our hearts this morning. May we ask the Lord God, yes, I failed you. But today is a new day. I'm putting this again behind me. Just take my heart. Consecrate it. And let me only utter praises to you by the testimony of my life.